Good morning. Thank you for joining us at Out and About magazine. Today we are interviewing Mr. Robert Bush. He is an entrepreneur and an investor based here in the UAE. Mr. Bush, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. We look forward to this chat. We know we are going to be learning some amazing things about you and your journey. So let's start out with you telling us a little bit about yourself and your entrepreneurial journey. Well, that's how much time do we have, because that could be a long conversation. So I'll maybe skip to a few of the highlights. Yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> well, so entrepreneurial journey. I'll, I'll start with the journey part first. Okay. And my journey, I think, really started when I went to high school, because I, I, I'm an inner city kid, and I wanted to go to a good high school, which was one and a half to two hour commute one way, and one and a half to two hour commute coming back. And I did that journey uh, across the Mississippi River to the St. Louis side uh, of Missouri. We lived on, in southern Illinois. And that journey taught me discipline because I had to get up so early in the morning. It, it, it taught me some self-reliance because I was traveling alone. I was um, a 13-year-old uh, teenager. No one else in my town went to the school. And, um, and I needed to be at, uh, on time at 8 a.m. Um, and I think the last thing it taught me was that the world was a much bigger place than I realized. Because I'm on this bus with workers and business people, and me, this, this kid, and I was undersized, and I was geeky, and I had an afro, and I had these weird glasses, and this giant book bag that I was dragging around to school every day. So that, I think that was probably the first part of the journey part where my, my horizons became much more uh, exposed. Um, on the entrepreneurial side, what, when I went to uh, the, the, the boys' school, this was in 1980, and this was, you know, hip-hop and R&B, well, hip-hop was just starting, and there was this great song, I don't know if you remember it, called Rapper's Delight. And, you know, I was one of the few uh, uh, young black boys at the school, so all my uh, white friends, my cool white brothers, uh, were like, Bush, what are they saying? Like, what are the lyrics? And I'm like, I don't know. I'm trying to figure it out too, right? But I listened and I listened and I wrote down all the lyrics and I gave them to my mother. She typed them for me. She photocopied 50 copies. And a couple of days later, I came to school and I sold 50 copies for a dollar a piece. So I made $50 thanks to Rapper's Delight in 1980. And, you know, $50 for a young teenager. That was a lot of, a lot of money for me. So that was the start of my, the entrepreneurial part of my journey. Flash forward 20 years later, I had, after having finished university, uh, where I studied English literature and philosophy, and then I uh, got a, uh, studied economics, and I studied finance, and I ended up with getting a doctorate in, in law, a Juris Doctorate. Um, and I combined all of those things. I started, a, a co-founded a company, a fintech company, before sort of Things were called fintech, and um, we spent six years grinding away with with my other partners. And finally, we sold it. We sold it to the World Bank. Uh, but the cost that it took in relationships, and there was no work-life balance, and the the struggle that it took, the passion that you had to have, the discipline you had to have, uh, was was a very key defining moment on the entrepreneurial side of that journey because we finally got it sold. 
Um, and then, of course, you do well, then you're asked to do more projects, you get involved in, in things. So I went from entrepreneurship to uh, private equity, and then from private equity, uh, which is about half of my time, mm -hmm. the other half is government advisory. Okay. Tell us, why did you choose banking as a career? Well, it's, I'm not so sure I actually chose banking, per se, because I remember I had a, a mentor. And he wasn't a mentor for a very long time, but it was a, uh, an older gentleman that, uh, for some reason, took a liking to me. And I would ask him all kinds of questions. He was very, he, he was very tolerant. And I said, you know, should I become a lawyer? Should I become a banker? Should I become an investment banker? Uh, and he said, Bob, it doesn't matter. I said, what do you mean? He said, because if you're going to get to the top of the mountain, you're going to have to understand and be fluent in all of it. So just choose one. And so it wasn't so much that I chose a banking career or I chose a legal career. I studied all of them. I was very diligent in my studies. And I did well on my first job was on the legal side of Wall Street. I saw that the bankers were the clients and they were making more money. And I said, well, you know what? I should be on that side because it looks like they're, they're the, in, in control of the deals. And so I moved over to the, to the banking side. But it all came about not because I was looking for a banking career. I was looking to try to understand how deals work and how to, how to bring value in businesses. And, you know, at 55 now, I use my legal skills, I use my economic skills, I use my financial skills. So I wouldn't say that I'm a banker per se. I like to think of myself as a problem solver and a person that you can come to for, for trusted advice. Well, that's amazing. Now, you've had the opportunity to look at many startups. One of the things that we do at Out and About is to try and give as much advice to our readers. Um, some, some of them are listeners. Now, what do you look for when you're trying to invest in a new startup? There's the usual stuff, right? The usual factors. Um, the quality of the team, you know, the cohesiveness of the team, the skill set of the team, the entrepreneurial fit to the, the project. And then, of course, there's the, uh, the product market fit. Is this a product that people want? Um, how do you know that there's demand? But the bigger issue is not either one of those. It's market timing. Let me, let me ask you a question. Would you rather invest in a good company that's in a great, mar robust market or an excellent company in a falling market? I'd do the first one. I think you want yeah. to do the first one. Yeah. So a good investor has to actually look at the general market conditions mm -hmm. even before he starts looking at the startup. Mm -hmm. If that startup is in the wrong uh, timing or the wrong environment, many startups have failed not because they weren't hardworking, not because they weren't diligent, it was because the time wasn't right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, I'm accustomed to Dragon's Den. Uh, I'm not sure what the American version is. Shark Tank. Yeah? Short, yes, Shark Tank is the one. We think of just entrepreneurs going and pitching for an investor to invest in their product or service. What do you think is the best approach to pitching? The best approach to pitching, as with almost any form of communication, it's to understand your audience. I think a good pitch before you go into the Dragon's Den or the Shark Tank, you should already know what Mark Cuban thinks or the other people think and what, what kinds of uh, businesses have they invested in. 
what kind of value do they create? So I think the first rule is, as always, is to understand and know your audience. The second thing is it's, it's important to understand how to articulate the problem. If it's taken you a long time to, to articulate the problem, one or two things are likely to be happening. Not always the case, but it's likely to be happening. Either you don't understand the problem well enough, or the person you're talking to doesn't understand the problem well enough. So if you find yourself spending a lot of time in your pitch or in your communication, trying to get your listener or the potential investor to understand the problem you're trying to solve, something's not working. How does someone get you excited as an investor? What will make you want to commit? Well, I love entrepreneurs, so I always want to commit. I always want to figure out where I can bring value. It's one of the reasons I, I think that we met, because I saw an entrepreneurial spirit in your magazine and, and, the, and, and, and how you communicated with me, and how can I bring value to what you're doing? I get a lot of satisfaction when I can. I can't always. Mm -hmm. So I have a bias for, for entrepreneurs. I have a bias for innovation. Um, but one of the things that's, that's important uh, for me and my process is that I can't allow the, the interaction because of that positive bias. I know how hard it is to struggle and get something done to get in the way of the actual analysis. So it's great when the teams can pitch, but I can tell you, for example, when I spend a lot of time in Central and Eastern Europe, the pitch quality isn't very good. You know, there's a saying that, uh, you know, Americans can take a molehill and, and, and make and market it like a mountain. Yeah. But other parts of the world and certain personality types, they have this wonderful shining mountain, but they pitch it like a molehill. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that's where the, the, the jewels are, that's where the best opportunities are. So the pitch has its place, the interaction has its place, but the process, the methodology, understanding the, the business um, uh, is important. So what gets me to commit is that if that business model or that team or the market in the most sterile environment possible. So yes, I love the idea of, you know, tell me, give me the elevator pitch, get me excited. But after the, the excitement dies off and the, because most of your customers don't want to pay you. Most of your partners don't want to commit. So if you can show me that you can get the commitment to bring other people on your team, what was your level of commitment? What kind of commitment are you able to get from potential partners, from potential customers? Because they're harsh in the wild, in the real world. They don't love entrepreneurs. They love their money first. They, love, they, they want their problem solved. So for me, the, the best way to know whether I should commit is to see how well you have committed and have gotten others to commit. Thank you, that's great advice. Okay, so let's switch gears a little bit and let's talk about the impact of COVID on the economy. And now that we're in the position that we've got a vaccine, how do you think the economy will recover? At what speed do you think it will recover? Well, as it relates to the question of speed, we've lost that one. COVID won. The question of speed was in the beginning. How quickly could we respond? How, how, how were we able to marshal our resources and get people to follow 
uh, certain prescriptions, certain protocols. So we all lost the, the, the speed. Um, some have done, have done better with regards to responding to the pandemic than others. Um, so now we're at, not at the speed level so much, we're at the question of resiliency. You know, it reminds me of um, back in, you know, we talk about the, the, the war on COVID, the war on, on, on different diseases, et cetera. Um, and, and those analogies are very helpful. But what you find in history is that when leaders and generals were talking about, we're gonna get the trips home, troops home by Christmas, or as uh, my former president, you know, this is the day uh, after the inauguration, uh, my former uh, U.S. president, you know, this is going to go away. You're going to be back in your in your in your offices very, very quickly, very soon. Um, what you find is that when you start talking in terms of fastest and quickest, you know, COVID doesn't really work that way. Um, health scares and these things don't really work that way. Um, and so, when the leadership says we're going to have this conquered by a certain date. Um, it really doesn't do justice to the complexity of the problem, the complexity of human behavior. Um, so as opposed to saying we're going to have something done by such and such time, it is better to think in terms of never again. How do we prevent this kind of situation happening again? And that's where I think that we are. Um, and so, you know, in terms of resiliency, looking at your supply chains, there's going to be another shock of some sort. In fact, there's always shocks. There's always a crisis. Um, and so operationally, how can we improve our supply, our supply chains? Uh, and a lot of economies are doing that, including the UAE is doing that. Uh, uh, you know, clearly, there are issues around food security that are being addressed. Uh, clearly, there are issues around energy security that are being addressed. But there's another resiliency that I think is very important as I talk to you know, my fellow brothers here in the UAE and family and friends in Europe as well as in the United States. There's a mental fatigue. The mental health element to our resiliency is exceptionally important now. And that's not something that happens quickly. That's not a fast thing. That's a process thing. And so I think as opposed to thinking, when are we going to have the economy at, uh, at full uh, rate again? And thinking more in terms of what do we do to make sure the mental health of our frontline workers who've been battling this for months and months, their families, um, um, interactions with our bosses, interactions with our kids who are studying at home, or with their husbands and, and spouses because we're working at home. These are the resiliencies that I think that we need to be careful about. Which sectors do you think will recover fastest? And maybe which ones do you think will recover a little bit slower? Well, I, I think there are a couple of ways to look at the sectoral question. You know, clearly companies that, have, uh, that were able to, uh, retailers that were able to go online, the e-commerce had a boom. Uh, supermarkets have a boom. The toilet paper companies had a boom, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. So those kinds of things are fine. I, I think the question is a little bit more nuanced than that because as you find with any sector, it's sort of like uh, an iceberg. Mm -hmm. We talk about what we see, the sector, but underneath 
the ice and the water. You've got all this stuff underneath. And so as an advisor or as an investor or as an entrepreneur, I'm looking to see what's below the ice. Mm -hmm. And so you've got to get to the subsector levels, actually. You've got to get to um, not thinking in terms necessarily of which sectors, because as you know, sectors, there's a whole spectrum. There are, there are fast, fast uh, movers, mm -hmm. and then there are fast followers, mm -hmm. and then there are slow movers, and then there are slow followers. Uh, and, so, and so sectors have this broad spectrum of, of participants. And so if you're trying to bet on a sector and don't understand that it's actually about the subsectors and the companies within those subsectors, as an investor, you're not gonna win often because the game is not at, uh, at that level, the game is at the executional and operational levels. What kind of strategies do you think businesses should be putting in place to help them recover smoothly and effectively? Well, what you typically find, particularly when there's a lot of change happening, um, is if the events are predictable, hierarchies and command and control work very, very, very well. And, but when things are unpredictable, having to run things all the way up to the chain of command and that hierarchy can get in your way of being resilient, as we talked about earlier, or being agile, uh, which is also important when you're dealing with, with change. So the ability to adapt is, 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 is uh, part of the structure of the business. And so, you know, I like to say that crises either amplify what you do well or magnify what you don't do well. So if before COVID or before the crisis you had a very bureaucratic, slow-moving, hierarchical type of structure, then the crisis is going to highlight that. And you saw that with companies and countries that were very top-heavy in their decision-making. They just were not as able to respond. Um, but if you have a, um, a structure where there is built-in feedback loops, where the person on the ground is able to communicate and that information can go upstream very quickly to the decision makers and there is an interaction and there is a, um, uh, that decision making process is not burdened with so much protocol as it is with effective and efficient communication, those types of businesses and those types of structures do very well. And one of the things I like about being in the UAE, despite, of course, you've got ministries and government departments and all of these different things, it seems the speed at which information goes top through, bottom up, that that feedback loop is quicker than most other places that I've been in, which is why they're able to make better decisions based on information and data and facts as and when they occur. So get the structure right. Uh, is, is an important part of the strategy. I think, additionally, the willingness to experiment, um, as you've seen, as I've seen when I do the commute from Abu Dhabi to Dubai, is it four days before you take the next test? Is it six days before you next, take the next test? And sometimes that can seem to be a bit frustrating, but it actually is an indication that the government is watching what's going on. It didn't say, well, we did that last week, we're gonna stick with that. So the ability to take that information, bring in that data, that analytical uh, analysis, and, and make decisions um, as and when appropriate, um, and be willing to say, you know what, we thought 
four days would be fine and now it's six so we thought six and now it's two or whatever not being afraid to experiment and to recognize that in a fast-moving market it's okay as a government or as an authority to shift and change as the data requires now you've given some amazing advice so far so I just want to take you back a little bit say your 20 year old self is there any advice that you would give to your 20 year old self that's funny because um, when I was 20 I was fearless and it's easy to be fearless uh, I was too geeky to have a, a girlfriend um, I didn't have any responsibilities, only those responsibilities to myself. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't have a mortgage. I did have uh, some book loans and some student loans, but nothing that I thought would, would weigh my ability to be a sponge. Mm -hmm. um, and so instead of me thinking that as my 55-year-old self would give advice to my 20-year-old self, I think it's actually the other way around. I think. It's my 20-year-old self that needs to remind my 55-year-old self that don't let the world beat you down. That, that, learner, that learner's mindset, that, that optimism that you have, that you can take on the world and you can um, take chances, et cetera. Don't let, you know, keep that. Don't let all the, the burdens of, of the things around you keep you from still seeing the world afresh. So it's not that the 55-year-old should be giving advice to the 20-year-old. It's the 55-year-old needs to remember how I thought as a 20-year-old. So it's actually the 20-year-old giving advice to the 55-year-old. Thank you so much. Now, I might change that question in future then <laughs> because I, I actually love that response to it. And I do ask that question quite a bit. So I definitely will be thinking about the way I answer that question and I ask that question rather in future and make sure that I'm asking it the opposite way. So more of looking back at your 20 year old self, what would you take from your 20 year old self at this point in your life? So thank you for that, that's great advice. Now, can you tell us about any profound life lessons that you've learned along your entrepreneurial journey? As I then try to sort of think about the blessings that I've had, the lumps that I've had, you know, the 20-year-old mistakes that I've made, at the end of the day, it's all to the good. And, and what is the, 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 the constant of all of that is trying to make sure I had a proper sense of place for myself because whether I'm in, 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 you know, that geeky little kid going across the river to this prestigious school or then moving to New York or then moving to Brussels and to London and to Germany and to Dubai and all these wonderful experiences I've had, um, to have a true sense of who one is means that you can go anywhere and interact with anyone. And I think the thing that my parents are most proud of, they said that, you know, we've raised a son that is as comfortable with kings as he is with the shawarma guy on the street. And I truly am. I, it, it's, we're all human. We all have a certain amount of grace that, that, that God gives us. Um, and so I don't know if there is one profound professional thing 
but it's a combination of tons of things that have helped give me a sense of myself that means that I'm comfortable with who I, with whom I, with, with who I am. And consequently, others tend to be comfortable with who I am. Now with your expertise, with your experience, with all the life lessons that you bring, you have the world as your oyster and you've chosen the UAE as your base. Now why the UAE? I'll tell you a story. I, in 1990, I came to the UAE, a college friend of mine had a sister working here. And I thought she was cute. So I didn't really know much about the UAE, but I did know that uh, he had a cute sister. So I said, yeah, I'll take that trip. So we fly over, and I believe it was the summer of 1990, and boy, it was hot. And I, we stayed almost two weeks, and the, we, I remember um, seeing some gentlemen, older gentlemen, and they were, there were four, maybe five, I can't remember exactly, but it was four or five. The average age was 65 to 75. And they were talking in Arabic, and they had their dishdashes on. And I was curious, right, that 20-year-old that mindset. And so I walk over and I say, assalamu alaikum. And they say, hello. And, they, and, and one said, what are you doing here? And I said, I'm on vacation. And they started to laugh, because it's like 120 degrees outside. I'm this pipsqueak of a kid. Uh, coming to vacation. And he said, w why are you here? And, uh, and so then we start talking, and, and we talk for a good 20, 20, 25 minutes. What are you in school for? Why, who are you visiting? You know, pleasantries. And then uh, one of the gentlemen who was silent said, uh, you know, uh, Bob, we don't need you here. And I said, huh? He says, we don't need you here but we want you here. And I said, what do you mean? And to paraphrase that, we talked another five minutes or so. He said that if you want to do business here, if you want to understand my culture, my people, you seem like a smart guy, but don't approach my people just with this. Mm -hmm. Approach with this. So understand my culture, understand my language, understand my heritage because we can send our kids to fancy schools just like the schools you went to. And that is a lesson that I've always kept in everything that I've done. Try to um, approach people and problems, both analytically as well as emotionally. And it's tough, it's a challenge uh, to always do that. So that was my first, so one of my biggest life lessons, you asked me a little bit earlier about life lessons, came from 75-year-old gentleman who's, who uh, never met again that actually changed my course. Instead of going straight to business school, I also started to learn uh, more about the culture and I, and I took some Arabic lessons, etc. Um, so that was my first introduction as to, wow, why UAE? And then as we um, um, started getting more into our careers, it became apparent that there's just a lot going on here. Dare I say that but for a few additional things, the UAE could be the Silicon Valley of the Middle East. Um, the, when you look at the ecosystem here from 
the startup community, whether the activities that you have at um, the DIFC FinTech or, or Nook, right? And then you come to Abu Dhabi where you've got Hub 71, which is a government-backed uh, initiative uh, targeting startups. If you want to go further into the, the, the development cycle of your, or life cycle of your business, and you want to take a company public, well, you have the Dubai financial markets, and you have the Abu Dhabi uh, exchange. If you want crowdfunding, if you want family office support, um, the UAE and its Emirates, they have across the entire life cycle of the business. If you're just getting started, or you're a mature business, and you are multinational, looking to use this region, uh, as a hub or use the country uh, or the city as a hub you have it all here so whether it's energy commodities at the DMCC or energy with Mazdar um, uh, writing a hundred million dollar check you can do that with Mubadala if you need a hundred thousand dollar check you can get that at Hub 71 so it's a wonderful place to be for a person like myself that is looking at being able to nurture young businesses and then also advise more mature businesses. The ecosystem is, 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 is quite developed. Now that's fantastic. Now one of the reasons that I reached out to you was because I'm inspired by what you do. I, I'm true, I truly am inspired by what you do. So is there anyone that has inspired you with awe and why was that? It's a, it's, a, it's a great question. I remember being a big fan of biographies because I wanted to know what all of these interesting people, these leaders, CEOs did and presidents of countries did and trailblazers did. And I've read hundreds of these biographies trying to see, well, what's that secret sauce? What is it that I can take from them? What lessons can I get uh, to emulate? So I think at the end of the day, extraordinary leadership inspires me. Mm -hmm. And it also is one of the reasons why I like being uh, in the UAE. You know, the leadership of the UAE started with Sheikh Rashid and uh, uh, Sheikh Zayed. And it has now gone the next generation to Sheikh Mohammed bin Rashid mm -hmm. and Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed. And so we're all human. And, and these are men, and the leadership are men and women in flesh and blood, just like uh, I am. And so being able to, to look uh, and, 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 and being in an, in an environment where you've got such extraordinary leadership. And then I, I like to, to take a little bit of characteristic or trait from this person, and then this leader, and this leader, and then I sort of bring them together and say, well, what is, you know, what is unique about me and how can I bring some those in? So it's less about a particular person that has, inspires me than uh, this culmination of really interesting people, some of whom I've had an opportunity to meet face to face, but many of whom would not know my name or know my face uh, if there were only two people in the room um, that have been inspiring. Um, and, and there's a lot of inspiration and a lot of positive energy that I draw from by being in the UAE. 
Now, you are quite successful, um, and I'm sure you will admit to being a successful entrepreneur or investor. What motivates you at this point to still go on? So first, let me, you know, and this is not me being shy or deferential, but I really want to talk about this notion of success because I think, um, so thank you for the compliment for sure, but I can tell you I have a chip on my shoulder. I will, no matter what I will accomplish, God willing, or have accomplished, I will never feel like I am a success. I feel that I am just a work in progress. And I treat my daily habits, my daily activity like that. Because when I think of success, and maybe it's just that Midwestern, you know, middle class upbringing. When I hear the term success, I hear rest on your laurels, rest on your success. There is no rest. We have, we don't know how, how many days we, we, we've been given. Um, I try to live them earnestly. I try to live them with purpose. Um, those are the things that I care most about, not this, this notion of success. A lot of this success, um, you know, there are dimensions to success, right? There's the, the some financial success, but that's just so fleeting. Um, there's the relational success, you know, which I believe that I can do better at, right? Um, how am I able to, um, you know, who, who's going to care when I'm gone? Who have I impacted? And it doesn't have to be impact in the sense of millions of people. Um, one can be successful, you know, and I think about people who have influenced me, that the teacher in the classroom with 10 kids that says something that triggers something in that young mind, wow, that's a success because it wasn't by the scope or scale, but it was the impact. You know, have we all had teachers, for example, that we look back on and we go, that I remember Mr. or Mrs. Mm -hmm. such and such. Mm -hmm. To me, mm -hmm. those are indications of success. So if we're talking about those kinds of elements of success, then I think that I have had impact in some way on the communities and people around me, and that's very important for me to do. Now, if I do my job well, if I bring value, hopefully other things come with it. I get invited to be uh, in, in your magazine. Um, I have enough money to, to, to go on vacations and things like that. So those things are natural outcomes, but I find that if you're targeting that type of success, you'll just be a rich guy in, 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 the, in the cemetery. That has just really struck a chord. Um, and having this talk with you, there are a lot of questions that I usually ask, and mm. I have decided I'm going to ask some of these a little bit differently. Just see. having this conversation. Now, we are going through quite a challenging time with the pandemic, and mental health is at the forefront of a lot of our minds because there's so many people who are on their own because they're stuck in one country without their family or just people are not able to do what they usually do. How do you look after your mental health, especially at this time? Yeah, it's, it's a challenge. Um, I have a spiritual advisor that says, Bob, moment by moment, 
as soon as you go a moment where you think you're on top of things and you're you know you you have success that's when you'll slip that's when you'll make a mistake go moment by moment and i said well how do i go moment by moment he says keep praying the you know the there's the episodic view of praying well there's a certain time to pray you know, uh, uh, you know muslims pray five times a day and uh and directed a certain way um Christians, we often pray before a meal. And these are nice habit things just to remind us how, you know, let's get it in. But between breakfast and lunch, a whole lot of stuff can happen. And if you don't stay prayerful, at least for me, right, uh, I will think stupid things, I will say stupid things, I will do stupid things. And so part of my mental health is actually to try to remember to stay prayerful. It reminds me of when I first got here. Uh, um, not the first time when I came on vacation in the 1990, but when I moved here uh, as an employee for uh, the government here, I was in a, in a, the first month, and I was in a very important meeting. This was in uh, early 2004. And I was in the boardroom, and executive chairman uh, of the of the of the of the group, uh, Sultan bin Salam, who's the executive chairman of, of uh, DP World, and he had some of his other uh, government advisors. And this was the first time that I had a proper meeting with him, so I was excited, and I didn't know what the meeting was going to be about. And so we go through a, a bunch of things. Uh, it was end up being about an hour, hour and a half meeting or so, but about I think. 30 so, so minutes into the meeting, it was prayer time. And so my Muslim brothers, brothers get up and uh, to go to the prayer room. And I'm like, hey, where are you guys going? It's like, uh, both, uh, it's prayer time. Just give us a couple minutes and we'll come back, we'll finish the meeting. And I said, no, you're not. I'm gonna pray too. And so it may not have been anything to them, but I remember them saying their prayers on their prayer rug. And I got on my knees, and there was a couch in, uh, in the office, in uh, the chairman's, chairman's uh, Salam's office. And I got on my knees, and as we do, we pray like this. Okay. And I said my prayer to God as my colleagues said their prayer to Allah. And it was a very special moment for me because God is bigger than any religion. And so um, that's one of the ways I think that you can uh, keep your mental health. Uh, or it might just have been, I'm competitive, and I'm like, I don't want these guys to get into heaven before me. So if they're praying now, let me get in line and pray too. I, I think it was more the former. But um, I think you know, recognizing that the flesh can be misleading and that what we really need to do is to try to tap into an energy something bigger and greater than us as we make any kind of decision because there's been a lot of stuff going on right mm -hmm. you know there's a lot of pain in the world yes. at the moment and, and families are suffering and loved ones are suffering and grandma and grandpa and all of that i think if you do stay mindful that there is a god that is in control of all of this. It also helps put all of this in context. 
we love our family members and our colleagues, and now they are ill or they've passed on, but it's all for the good. It's all for the good, and there's always a purpose behind it. You know, there's a there's a there's a, uh, a scripture, and I'm not good at quoting scripture per se, but that says that, that everything is for the good. We don't understand it, but if we really believe that God is good and everything is for the good, then that which looks painful and harmful, recognize that it is for the good, and it is up to us to either figure out. Yeah. what it is or sometimes it's so complex we can't figure it out just know that it's okay and that helps us sometimes just to get through that moment and that gets me through so much mm. my mom my mom's a minister oh really? uh, yes she is oh, and wow. she always reminds me of that just always remember that it is for the greater good mm -hmm. and you might not see it mm -hmm. but it always works itself out and you'll look back and you think God is amazing mm. because I didn't think I could get through that. Mm -hmm. However, look at where I am. Very good. Um, and this takes us to our last question, <laughs> okay. which usually is the same for everybody that I interview. Okay. What quote do you live by? Is there, well rather, is there a quote that you live by? Because I know with this question, some people have one, some people don't. So is there a quote that you live by? <sighs> well, one quote. Quotes are like food and music. It depends on one's mood. It certainly depends on my mood. So I've got tons of quotes, you know. Um, but the quote that comes to mind in this conversation, since we're about to end it all, is that the, the quote that says that uh, it takes a three-year-old boy, and it takes a boy three years to learn how to speak. It takes that same boy more than 50 to learn when to shut up. So, are we done yet? Well, yes, we sure are. <laughs> now, thank you so much, Mr. Bush, for your advice, for your words of encouragement. I am sure our readers or listeners or viewers will really find lots of lessons in this and will get lots of inspiration from it. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me.